Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of Who Cares What's the Point, the podcast about the mind for people who think. And this week I'm talking to Jonathan Schaefer, who is a graduate student at the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at Duke University in the USA. And in this episode, we're talking about enduring mental health. You might be familiar with a statistic that is often talked about that one in four or one in five people have experienced a mental health disorder. Now, what we often forget here, though, or we misunderstand, is that that might be at any particular time that people are asked. If we look more carefully at this, and in this study, it reveals that by the time we hit midlife, four out of five people, in fact, more than that, have experienced a mental health disorder by the time they reach age 38. It's only actually 17% of people, and that might be an overestimate, that do, do have not experienced a mental health disorder by the time they reach that age. Listen to our conversation between myself and Jonathan as we discuss how he gets to that result and also what that might mean for understanding what it takes to be mentally healthy, but also how it is that we can best support those people who do uh, experience mental health disorders and whether we should be taking a so-called social investment approach or whether we should be looking at more universal types of interventions. We talk about lots of other stuff in this conversation too, so please enjoy the conversation and let me know what you think. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you for joining us on the show this week. Uh, it's great to have you here. We, we always start with trying to figure out why it is that you got interested in this area of research in the first place. So please tell us about that. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I'm, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, the backstory to this paper, I think, is kind of interesting. Uh, it was sort of inspired by a, an earlier paper written in 2011 by my graduate school mentor, um, Terry Moffat, and some other folks in my lab. And that paper was titled, How Common Are Common Mental Disorders? Evidence that lifetime prevalence rates are doubled by prospective versus retrospective ascertainment. Um, so what the paper did was it compared two types of ways that we interview people about mental illness. So the first way, retrospective assessment, is the way most assessments are done. So essentially, you, you select a representative sample of the population, people of all different ages. You sit them down. You ask a very structured series of questions about their experience of mental illness and psychiatric symptoms. Uh, and what retrospective means is that the participants are looking back over their entire lives. So if I were asking you about depression, I could say, you know, has there ever been a time in your life where uh, for two weeks or more, nearly every day, you felt sad, blue, or depressed? And so you'd have to think back over the course of your life and, and try to remember. And then the other way of interviewing people that they did was they, they did this sort of prospective assessments. So they interviewed people repeatedly every few years. And then they asked, okay, in the past year, let's not think over your whole life. Just in the past year, has there been a time, um, you know, if we're talking about depression, they could say lasting two weeks or more where every day you felt, nearly every day you felt sad, blue, or depressed. Um, and so what the paper that my advisor wrote showed was that you could essentially double the number of people who meet criteria for very common disorders like depression, anxiety, substance use, etc. cetera, uh, if you ask them repeatedly over time compared to if you ask them only once. 
And so what you're looking to investigate is if you can accept that actually the more often you ask, then the proportion of people who report having some kind of mental health issue uh, seems to grow. So if you look at that over an extended period of time, what does that look like? Well, so I think that starts to look like what we we try to show in, in the paper. So the paper that my advisor wrote uh, he was using data from the Dean study, which is a large population representative cohort study of uh, about a thousand people who live in Dunedin, New Zealand. So what we did was we sort of followed them from birth up until they were age 32. And, you know, they were assessed for mental illnesses every few years starting at age 11. Mm. Um, and the paper was interesting to me because you notice that by just age 32, the percentages of people who have met criteria for these really common mental disorders like anxiety and depression are, are really, really high. So it's like 50% had met criteria for some kind of anxiety disorder, 40% had met criteria for major depression, about a third had met criteria for alcohol dependence, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this wasn't a weird finding that was sort of unique to the Dunedin study. Other people were finding sort of consistent results when they were looking at their own studies. Um, and so that kind of led us to wonder, well, hey, if this is true, then how many people actually managed to go through life avoiding these conditions? So, so the paper that we're talking about today, the one that um, I actually was lead author on, we extended our data collection out to age 38 for the Dunedin study. So we got another round of interviews. And rather than look at the percentage of people who had, you know, depression, anxiety, substance use issues, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, what have you, we sort of flipped that on its head and we asked, okay, well, what percentage of people actually have made it to 38 with nothing? Yeah, and that, that to me, I, I originally trained as a health psychologist and then as a clinical psychologist. That, to me, mm-hmm. was the interesting thing about this paper because we're familiar with lots of studies that indicate that perhaps, you know, we um, – we can think of the number of people who have a mental health disorder uh, is something around one in four, one in five. Right. Uh, and for me, this completely flips that on its head. Uh, this is about, well, how many people actually get to midlife mm-hmm. without experiencing anything like a mental health disorder? Mm-hmm. And, and then what is it about these people um, that we can learn from? That's right. Yeah. And I'm really glad you brought up that one in four, one in five statistic, because I think that's the prevalence statistic that most people are familiar with. Um, and I've often heard that statistic sort of taken out of context, because what that statistic is really telling us is that if you ask people, you know, kind of on that day or, you know, within the past week or so, like, are you currently meeting criteria for some sort of mental illness? You get about one in four, one in five. When you extend it to, have you experienced any kind of mental illness over the course of your entire life, you get a much, much higher estimate. And I think people often confuse those because I've heard in many situations, even even clinicians, even researchers talk about, well, one in five will experience a mental disorder. And that's really not true. Mm. So it's interesting. The first part of your paper is really trying to establish the case for looking at this. Um, and, And you look at the different study designs over different time periods as well. So perhaps Mm -hmm. you could talk about those different study designs and how it is that you arrived to the point where you thought, actually, this is 
a really interesting phenomenon that we need to look at in a bit more detail. Sure. Yeah. So um, I start in the paper by sort of doing a sort of broad overview of the different ways in which people have tried to um, get a handle on what is the lifetime prevalence of, of mental disorder. And so when we say lifetime prevalence, that's just, just a way of saying, um, you know, the proportion of people who will experience one or more of those conditions over the course of their lives. Um, and so to date, there's sort of been three types of studies that have looked at this question. Um, so one type is uh, studies that look at data from uh, national registries. So certain Scandinavian countries with nationalized healthcare systems keep very detailed records on healthcare service use. Um, and the really neat thing about those databases is that they cover everyone in the population. So there have been studies that have looked through these databases and said, okay, what what proportion of uh, you know the country's population, say for example the Danish population, um, use uh, mental illness or mental health related services over the course of their lives? And so from those studies, you get estimates around one third, maybe thirty to thirty five percent. Um, and those are great studies, like I said, because it's usually data from several million people. Um, it's very detailed, very informative, very complete sample. Um, but of course, the problem is, um, you know, as, as you probably know, and I think a lot of people who are in the clinical field know, not everyone with a mental disorder is going to seek treatment. Um, you know, a lot of people fall through the cracks in, in a sense and, and don't connect with a healthcare provider or they just sort of try to manage it on their own. And in some cases, they might even be successful. Um, so when I'm looking at those studies, I sort of looked at those and, and thought to myself, well, okay, th this is probably a good sort of lower bound. So we can mm. sort of say the lifetime prevalence of mental disorder has to be at least this high. Um, so then another set of estimates, um, come from these large scale epidemiological surveys. And so these are sort of re largely retrospective studies like I was talking about um, initially. So these are studies where they get together a group of people of different ages, they do a really comprehensive interview, and they ask over the course of your life, have you met one or more symptoms? And they go through the symptom list uh, in a way that corresponds to the usually the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and they go through the official symptom criteria, and then based on that, they say, okay, based on our interview, this proportion of the population has at some point met criteria for depression, met criteria for anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so if you look at those papers, um, if you look in particular at the ones uh, done in the United States, the National Comorbidity Surveys, uh, which I think are the ones that are most often cited, you see that they say about 50% of people um, will have some sort of mental disorder over the course of their lives. Um, and so for a while, a lot of people were citing that number as sort of, you know, fact, truth, um, the, the correct proportion. But the problem with those types of studies, the limitations, I guess, because every study has limitations, is that, as you might imagine, people forget. So if you're... 56, and maybe you had an episode of major depression back when you were 16, it's possible you might not remember that on the day of your interview, or you might be inclined to, you know, think of that as not being quite as bad as it was, or thinking about it in different terms. Um, and because these surveys sort of rely on people 
agreeing and being willing to participate, uh, there is sort of a fear. And I think there's good data to suggest that a lot of these surveys don't, don't include sort of the most severely mentally ill. So people who have severe anxiety, severe you know, psychotic disorder, something like that, these are people who I think on average are going to be much less willing to agree to sit down and do a comprehensive interview with you know, a stranger who's part of a research team. Uh, and so that sort of led to my interest in um, estimates, prevalence estimates from these longitudinal studies, which is is uh, the, the type of study that I sort of focus on and the type of study that the Dunedin study is. So these are studies where you have a cohort of people, generally they're all the same age or at least close to the same age, and you follow them through over the life course. And these studies are really great when it comes to getting prevalence estimates because, like I was saying, you can interview people you know, again and again and again, and uh, what you find are dramatically higher lifetime prevalence estimates mm. because you reduce the amount of forgetting, um, you reduce the odds that uh, people with particularly severe disorders are going to slip through the cracks and not be counted. Um, and when you look across all of the longitudinal studies that have been done on this topic that study the prevalence of mental disorder and provide some sort of figure regarding the prevalence of any mental disorder, uh, which not all of them do, um, what you generally see is something like between 60 to 80-something percent of people uh, receive a diagnosis or would have received a diagnosis at some point. Now, that to me is uh, remarkable. Uh, and that seems to be, you know, the five studies that you talk about in your paper, um, they are consistently significantly higher than the retrospective studies and the National Register studies that you, you talk about as well. That's so, right. Know, with, with around 80 to 90% in, in study, some of those studies. Mm-hmm. So, and the, the interesting thing about that, too, if I just might add, is mm. um, it's completely possible that even those estimates are an underestimate. Um, because like I was saying, the way those studies are typically set up, you're not interviewing, uh, participants, you know, month after month, week after week, often it's a period of several years that goes by before you re-interview them. So it's entirely possible that like I talked about, people can forget about things that happened to them or experiences that they had earlier in life. It's entirely possible that some of the people, uh, that are interviewed in these longitudinal studies have experiences kind of earlier in the period, maybe right after the first interview and they kind of neglect to mention it when we when we see them again hmm. um on the on the converse of that one of the things you, you do uh, raise is actually there's a, a build-up of trust between these individuals and the research staff that are uh, contacting them over the years uh, as participants in this interview so mm-hmm. um they, there may be some facilitator recall but as you say there may still be some stuff that isn't being reported here right right I, so, I think it's a mix of both. Yeah. So, you know, that's a surprisingly small number of people I think most listeners would, would be thinking without uh, some kind of mental health episode uh, during their lifetime. Um, and so in your study, I guess one of the things that you were trying to look at in uh, uh, some detail was who are these people who seem to uh, – be able to experience this uh, enduring mental health. That's right. So, so perhaps you can tell us a bit more about how it is that you you looked at that. Sure. Uh, so what we did in this study was we first sort of collapsed 
diagnostic information across the different waves of the study. So we had several assessment waves. We were interviewing these people, like I said, again and again, every couple of years throughout most of their uh, teenage and adult life. Um, so we collapsed those into, we collapsed people into different categories, essentially. So on the um, sort of very, very bad side, we had people who met criteria for some sort of disorder um, at six out of the six assessment waves. So every time we saw them, they had met criteria for something. And then on the very opposite end of that, you had people who had never met criteria, which, like I said, was actually a fairly small group. So that was only like 17% of the, the whole sample. And then in the middle, you had some people who'd met criteria at only one of the waves, some at two and three and four and five. And the interesting thing uh, to me about that just distribution is that I think most people would assume that the zeros are going to be the most common group. Most people don't have anything because that's, that's what we think of as normal. Um, but what we, in fact, found, in, at least in our study, is that the most common type of person is actually someone who met criteria for at least one or two of those waves. So we started thinking of those people as sort of the, the average group, the people with what we called kind of typical mental health, um, the, kind of the, the modal pattern in the distribution, if you will. Uh, so when we were interested in looking at what distinguished people with no history of disorder from people with an average or typical history of disorder, uh, we essentially sat down and we ran analyses that compared individuals in those two groups. Mm. And what did you think you might find when you started running those analyses? What were your hypotheses? Well, so w what we did essentially is that a need study the Dean study has been going on for a long time, and a lot of papers about mental disorder, mental illness, and risk factors for mental illness have come out of this cohort. So we have a very detailed array of measures that either we've found or other people in other research have found are very good predictors or at least correlates of, of mental illness. So essentially what we did was we chose... Um, handful of those measures. Uh, we chose sort of the, the few measures that we thought had the best quality evidence linking them um, to risk of developing a later mental disorder. Uh, so those were things like we looked at um, childhood socioeconomic status, you know, how wealthy uh, a study member's family was when they were growing up. We looked at measures of the family environment, how warm and loving the parents were, how discipline was handled in the home, um, instances of maltreatment on the very severe end. Uh, we looked at childhood health, so we looked at whether there were any complications related to the study member's birth. We looked at their health as children. We looked at their intelligence as children and then as slightly older children, maybe just right before the teenage years. Uh, we looked at measures of personality, and then we asked about sort of family history of mental disorder. And again, these were all measures that previous work or work from our cohort have said are pretty good predictors of mental illness. So the hypothesis was, uh, because these are reliable predictors of mental disorder, we would expect the people without any mental disorder whatsoever to be doing really well on all of these measures. So we expected them to come from wealthy families, you know, with good family environments, very little negative discipline or maltreatment, high IQ, good health, good personalities, and, you know, no family history. 
And so what did you find? How much of, because that's quite an intersection that you're looking at there in terms of, you know, somebody has to have one or more of all of those and thinking about, well, what's the coincidence of these predictive factors with the actual sure. outcome that you're looking at? What did you find? Well, so what we found was that our hypotheses were sort of half correct. Um, so we found that it was the case that study members who had so what we described as an advantageous early childhood personality. So these are children who were very good at self-regulation. They weren't overly emotional or tearful. They didn't seem to display a lot of negative emotions as children. Uh, they had very good self-control. They tended to be sociable and well-liked by their peers. Those children had a higher likelihood of going on to experience enduring mental health, so of not being diagnosed with anything across the course of our study. Uh, but the interesting thing, and I think perhaps the, the more interesting thing, is that we did not find uh, that a lifetime lived without disorder really had anything to do with uh, how wealthy a child's family was, how intelligent they were, or how healthy they were physically as a child, which I think was very surprising. Um, because certainly with parental socioeconomic status, I think a, a lot of people, myself included, sort of would think about, uh, you know, the, the, the really mentally well-off as people who were sort of born in a, with, a, with a silver spoon in their mouth and, you know, never experienced adversity, uh, grew up in a wealthy family, et cetera, et cetera. But, but our data suggests there's, there's kind of more to the story than just that. Hmm. Did you test for any sort of floor effects in that? So it wasn't necessarily the wealth, but it was actually um, the lack of poverty. Uh, that might have uh, an impact here. Is that something that you could look at? I think that's something that we could look at. Honestly, the interesting part was that uh, we looked at the distribution across all uh, the different groups that we had. So we looked at kind of what is the average socioeconomic status of people without any sort of history of disorder. What is the average socioeconomic status of people with one episode of disorder, two episodes of disorder, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And basically the pattern you see is that there's a, there's a pretty clear drop-off towards the end of that distribution. So people who are persistently uh, being diagnosed with some sort of condition across the different waves are more likely to come from um, sort of families that are, are living in poverty. Uh, but you, you don't see the pattern really at all in the upper end. Uh, in fact, if anything, it's it's reversed. We saw a slight but you know statistically non-significant trend for for people with sort of typical mental health to have you know slightly higher um, socioeconomic status, which mm. was again surprising. Mm. Mm. So one interesting thing that I think you looked at as well here is that you know perhaps there's something about this group um, who seem to have um, fewer difficulties with uh, mental health issues across the lifetime. Maybe perhaps somehow they're playing that down. Maybe perhaps they they dismiss that or are not available really to report that. They don't, they don't really want to talk about that. They play it down. That's right. And, and how is it that you um, checked for that in your method? So what we did to check for that was we used these measures, uh, these informant report measures of psychiatric symptoms. So what that means is that over the course of the Deneen study, uh, while we're inviting study members back for these comprehensive diagnostic interviews, 
we were also mailing out questionnaires to people that they identified as close to them or important to them in some way, and essentially asking for uh, these informants' opinions of the study members' mental health. So we would ask questions like, um, you know, in your opinion, does the study member show signs of, of problems with depression? Or in your opinion, does the person show any uh, show signs of any unreasonable fears or problems with drugs or alcohol, things like that. Um, and so we were able to sort of compare the study members' own self-reports to what these other people in their lives were saying about them. And what we found, generally speaking, was that for the most part, the informant reports corroborated what we were hearing from our study members. So very few people who we had never diagnosed with a mental disorder had informants who were saying, no, 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 I think actually there might be a problem here in, in one or more of these domains. Okay. So, you know, the the interesting thing I think that you end up with here is that only 17% of those people who have been repeatedly assessed in your study managed to reach midlife so age 38, right. without any kind of diagnosable mental disorder at some point in their life. And That's so, right. So what we're really looking at here is that mental health disorder is being seen very much as the norm. You know, 83% of people um, would experience this, and it's not the exception at all. That's right. And like I was saying earlier, that 83% could even be an underestimate because we haven't followed people throughout the life course. We have another assessment round that's underway right now when all these people are 45 and I can almost guarantee you that that proportion is going to shrink ever so slightly. Yeah. And that was going to be one of my questions was from what we know of um, life course development uh, and particularly in modern times, how people perhaps will be struggling um, in terms of things like income, uh, in terms of things like housing, in terms mm -hmm. of um, all, all these things that modern life and the demographic hump is going to be kind of throwing at us in these uh, societies that we live in, in, in Western Western worlds, uh, but also in other places too. Um, wh what, are the, what are the likelihoods that actually you're going to be looking at a smaller and smaller proportion of people who don't experience mental health disorders? I, I think the likelihood is incredibly high. Um, I, I would temper that by saying that we do know from probably decades of research that most common mental illnesses will onset in adolescence and young adulthood. So you might expect uh, a slightly lower uptick um, in the number of people who receive a diagnosis at some point as you follow people, you know, into middle age. But I think it's certainly the case that we're going to see some new cases crop up at age 45. And if we have another round of data collection after that, I, I'm sure we'll see some more. Hmm. I mean, you do also, you know, as you say, there's that risk period of adolescence and early adulthood. And, and you talk a little yes. bit in your in your discussion around the protective factors here in childhood. Um, and so some of the, you know, the, the more typical things that, that come up that you've also identified is this idea of self-control. Um, but mm -hmm. you've also um, talked about um, relationships, uh, particularly at childhood level. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that as to what you what you think might be the the uh, influencing factors here yeah so it's it's interesting and it's somewhat tricky to parse apart so what we found was that uh, study members who as children 
were more liked by their peers, were less socially isolated, essentially, those people were more likely to be categorized as a member of our, our enduring mental health group, our group without any history of psychiatric diagnosis, um, which is interesting and I think consistent with a lot of research on the importance of friendships and social supports and being buffers, um, sort of emotional, psychological buffers to, to stressful events and adverse circumstances. So it's possible that we see something like that at play or that indicates that something like that is at play. Uh, it's possible that people who had more childhood friendships, childhood friendships also then went on to have more friends in adolescence and adulthood, and that helped them overcome adversity in a way that you know, didn't lead to psychiatric symptoms. Or it could easily, just as easily, I think, be the case that um, children who tended to experience fewer negative emotions, had a higher self-control, were just generally easier to get along with, were more likely to have a lot more friends. Um, so it's, it's hard to say whether that's a causal link or not, but I think it'd be something that um, is deserving of further consideration. Mm, and I think that's been wrestled with in that kind of childhood development space quite a lot in terms of, you know, is there something about this child that actually makes them more easy to be with? Uh, and so that's how they facilitate their, their relationships. Um, yeah, and maybe sure that's something that's, that's quite temperamental, um, something quite um, um, early on in that um, child's character that identifies right. them as such. Right. So what do you make of your results, um, Jonathan? Who, who do you think should care about the, the research that you, you have done and that is ongoing? And, and what are the, what's the point of your findings for um, wider consideration? Yeah, that's the million-dollar question, right? Um, so I, I worry I sound pretty full of myself if I say everyone. Mm -hmm. um, but honestly, I, I really do believe that on some level. Um, I think what I would say is that there are many different groups of people who should or at least might care about this for many different reasons. Um, so if I could run through those, I, I mean, I think people who are currently struggling with a mental disorder should care about these findings because it, it sort of shows they're not alone. So th this is something that happens to the majority of people, which I think means there's nothing wrong with seeking treatment and plenty of people struggle with similar problems and ultimately turn out okay. Um, I think if you think of most people in your life, uh, probably the majority of them have struggled with something, something at least diagnosable, maybe not along the lines of what you yourself are struggling with, but, but something, something at least relatable. Um, and I think doctors and psychologists and other healthcare providers should care about these findings because these people can still hold biases towards people with mental disorder diagnoses. I mean, I, I see this just working in clinics myself as part of my graduate school training. Um, and so I think acquainting people who are working as clinicians with the very high lifetime prevalence of, of these conditions can maybe help them confront any sort of lingering stigma or, or biases that they might have and maybe provide better or just more compassionate care. Um, and then I, I think people, I think people like parents and frankly, anyone buying healthcare or making decisions about healthcare policy should care about these findings because what they, they tell you is that uh, it's far more likely than not that you as an individual person or as a parent or, or whatever will have cause to use your health insurance 
to help you address a psychiatric problem or use your health insurance to help your child address a psychiatric problem. And I think if more parents had it in their head that statistically speaking, my, my child, my adolescent, uh, will probably struggle with some sort of mental health problem at some point, um, I would like to think they might be better at noticing the signs when it does happen and maybe more likely to, to help that person connect with a therapist or some sort of professional help so we can nip these problems in the bud uh, rather than waiting until they're, they're really severe and they're really just tearing someone's life apart. Mm. I agree with you in terms of the the issue around stigma reduction. If we actually flip our understanding of this and understand uh, to to a view that this is far more common than not uh, in in our in our communities, then I think that 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 could help certainly with that um, issue of coming forward. Uh, and I think also one one of the things that you raise is what we're seeing in the recent years in New Zealand, in the UK, in the US. Um, particularly in um, data that's been collected around that early adulthood, adolescence, but also later mm-hmm. on, is that more and more people are reporting that they're struggling with mental health difficulties and sometimes mm-hmm. diagnosable disorders. And clinical services are struggling to cope. Um, healthcare professionals are struggling to cope with the number of people that are coming forward because they're not designed to meet that number of people coming forward. So what we're actually uncovering here, I think what you're saying from from the longitudinal studies is that there was something hidden before, which is now becoming apparent now. And actually, this is the norm. And we actually should be scaling to meet this head on, not necessarily with just with clinical services, but also with more resilience based services around how how do people keep themselves well, perhaps. And, and I agree with that 100%. I, I think if you, you know, we, we look at physical conditions, we look at particularly contagious conditions like the colds and the flu and, you know, whatever else is going around. And we have preventative interventions in place. And they're just part of common sense. You know, wash your hands, cover your face, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think it would be wonderful if we sort of took a look at the ubiquity of mental disorder, at least across the life course, and, you know, spent more money, more time and more attention on developing sort of similar preventative interventions for, for these conditions as well. Mm. One of the things I was interested in here is the implications for um, kind of targeted uh, social investment approaches that are becoming quite um, talked about now. This idea that um, by identifying particular at-risk people, children, families, and by intervening early and targeting investment there, then that can make uh, a difference to their outcome. And Mm -hmm. to me, I'm not sure how well that fits with your findings in that actually there's a much greater range of people um, that are at risk of developing mental health disorders. Um, Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think I would agree with that perspective. Uh, I know there's a literature out there that has looked at, you know, whether it is more cost effective, for example, to really focus on developing these targeted interventions versus just applying very global uh, prevention efforts or intervention efforts that really target everybody regardless of risk. You know, there's been sort of 
some mixed findings about which is actually the best option for a given situation. Um, but I would say, yes, you probably could use this paper to support the notion that, that when, as far as mental health is concerned, or maybe certain types of mental health interventions, it, it does make sense to really um, think less about targeting the vulnerable and more about hitting everybody because mental illnesses are something that the vast majority of us are going to have to cope with. Mm. And finally, one one of the things that you raise in your discussion is this idea of enduring mental health. These people that um, seem to be able to get to at least age thirty eight without experiencing mental health difficulties uh, in their lives, and the idea of flourishing uh, more from the positive psychology field. Can you talk a little bit mm-hmm. more about how you think that those concepts are perhaps related or or not, or what we need to pay attention to here to ask more questions? Yeah. So. Flourishing is a uh, term developed to sort of capture the opposite of mental illness. Um, It's it's supposed to be a state of sort of extreme well-being, so just feeling good about functioning well in life. Um, Although there's actually a lot of good research that suggests it's it's more than just not having a disorder. You can you cannot you know have a clinically diagnosable condition, but still not be terribly content with your your life or your your circumstances. Um, so, I think it's interesting. Uh, one of the things we did in this study was we also looked at midlife outcomes. So we sort of asked the question: uh, Do people who go through life without meeting criteria for a disorder tend to be doing better? Um, in important domains by the time they are 38. Uh, and generally what we found is that, yes, actually, they, they, they do tend to be doing pretty well. They tend to be doing better than their peers with more typical histories in terms of how much education they receive, their socioeconomic attainment, their overall life satisfaction, the way that they rate their relationships, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that sort of conjures up this idea of, wow, these people must be really doing very well and, and certainly flourishing. But I think it's also important to note that uh, a lot of people who were in our enduring mental health group were not terribly satisfied with their lives uh, and were, you know, maybe rating them uh, below average. I think it was something like one quarter of the people that we categorized as having enduring mental health were scoring below our our cohort mean on a measure of life satisfaction. So uh, I, I think I think it's interesting to consider how these two different presentations, these two phenotypes might overlap, but I also think we have at least some preliminary evidence to really reinforce the idea that these are fundamentally separate concepts, and that if we're really focused on maximizing well-being, the factors that lead to that may be slightly different from the ones that just lead to an absence of mental disorder, if that makes sense. Thanks for listening to this week's show. I hope you found that really uh, an interesting lesson. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. You can uh, find us on Twitter too, at WCWTP, or myself, Saab Johal, your host and producer, at Saab, S-A-R-B. 
You can also find us whocareswhatsthepoint.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes or what your favorite podcast app, wherever it is and however, however it is you listen to the show. Um, please tell your friends, please review us on iTunes, all that helps to uh, increase our profile and to find new listeners too. Thanks very much for listening and don't forget. Who cares? What's the point?